Right. Some of you have already had this prophecy and heard it, but I will read it again. It's, it's a, a one from Chris Larkin in October last year. Um, it's called Dust Bowl. And some of us find ourselves in these situations right now. Uh, I saw great waves of dust rolling over the land. It looked like surf, but it was all dust blowing across the ground. It was like a huge dust storm, but it wasn't caused by wind, storms or tornadoes. It was from the earth. The waves kept rolling. They were no higher than buildings or any man-made construction, and they rolled over everything that could be seen. It seemed like the dust was in the wake of angelic hordes being released over the land, stirring everything and everybody, unsettling them. I saw many people being lifted and put down in different positions or places. Then I could see the outline of horses' hooves in the dust, galloping across the group. But the horses' hooves didn't cause the dust. I could see the angelic hosts above the horses, but they were not riding them, they were accompanying them. As these waves rolled, I could see figures running around, and I knew that the dust was coming from the figures, people who were stirred up, shaken up, disorientated. There was a lot of running around, people rushing in confusion. There was a stirring up of all that was earthly, and it was a preordained time for this to happen. Yet it was also a response to the prayers of the many saints who cried out for healing in the land. The prayers were not being answered in the way they thought, and to some it seemed a terrible thing, even the work of the enemy. But it was the Lord's mercy being released. All that was built on man-made structures was suddenly seen and then blown away, leaving level, clear places. I realised that the angels and horses were sent to stir up everything that was neither in the right place, position or purpose, or in the right heart attitude. <coughs> so I knew that the stirring was a good thing, but it didn't seem like that to watch, and it certainly wouldn't have felt good to the people who were in the middle of the waves. I saw buildings crumbling in the dust and lots of paper flying around. Through the dust I could see pinpoints of the most amazing light, pinpoints of glory. Some lights stayed in their place during the dust waves, but others seemed to move ahead of the waves. I asked the Lord what it meant. He said that his plans and purposes for time on earth have now moved into a new time, the planned time. Time had slipped, but this time he had to have his people right, in the right place, with the right people, and in right relationship with him and the body. Thank you. So he sent his angels to minister the stirring up of the people. But the dust was not from the angels, it was earthly things being stirred up and blown away. He said that in men, many in this time will be repositioned or have radical changes in circumstances or situations. Old mindsets and even godly desires will be swept away to prepare for this time on earth, which is ordained from heaven. After the dust had been stirred up, there was to be a time of seeming silence and emptiness, but this too was the Lord, and the emptiness was to be filled with a desire for God and his will alone, nothing of the earth or the dust. Then a great silence, a stillness, a moment occurred. The moment was for a response. After the response, movements slowly began to be seen and people emerged. It looked like Red Cross uniforms moving across a battlefield after a great battle. People of comfort and hope emerged first. Words of encouragement were bringing restoration and courage to rebuild out of the emptiness and devastation. Many repairers and restorers then appeared. The devastation was most seen in those who had been captive to religious structures which did not bring life, and many of these came from surprising places. The purpose of the horses was to trample the earth so that the people could see what was of dust and what was of the Lord. So much dust was thrown up. The pinpoints of glory were the things of heaven which were established on earth. Some of the things were established and needed to stay behind. Others were to carry forward into the new time as they had yet to reach completion. However, I knew that some of those lights that stayed behind had also not reached completion but that the time had passed and they needed to be left as they did not fit what was coming. Any of these lights in the future would be through a different means and those who were holding on to them needed to let go or stay behind. They would stay in their present places still holding the glory of God 
but missing the opportunity to move into the new thing God was going to do. I asked the Lord what people should do when the dust was rising and he said, what do you do in a dust storm? You should cover your eyes, ears and mouths. This was to keep them clear, so vision, hearing and testimony are not distorted. It will also stop premature words being released. Words will come later. After the dust passed, I will move in after the dust has passed, I will move in hearts and speak my secret plans and mysteries, so the people might not be deceived or confused during the dust storm and will have courage and strength to move forward with me. The prophets will speak when the dust has settled, for what is really happening during the dust storm is not to be spoken about. Much challenge, repentance and purification will take place in the dust. Much grace and mercy will be released. Hearts will be revealed. I knew it would be a shock and a loss to those who have been busy building structures and making plans. Many structures which fulfilled God's purposes in the past will be redundant in this new time. The structure the Lord is ordaining for the new time is built first on relationship with function following. Just as God is relational first and out of relationship life comes. Who we are together will determine what we do, not what we do signifying who we are. There is no lack of things to do but there is a famine of true fellowship. Fellowships of the heart will emerge from the dust storm. It will seem like all that is left from our old way is a heart to serve God. There will be no obvious form or structure to hide under. The Spirit will lead and guide, gather and reposition people, ready for what is coming. Only God can do this. Another indicator uh, of, the, of the same thing, that God is, if we're in a new era, God is doing a new thing, and we haven't got a map or a compass for it. In about 1987, I think it was, Jean Darnell, um, we saw her once, Darnell, we saw her once, didn't we, uh, at one of Don Double's camps, she was in her 80s, I think, then. But she had um, a vision. So we're talking about, what, 20, 20 odd, 25 years ago, aren't we? And this was her vision. What I saw was the British Isles. In a bird's eye view, a kind of haze was ho over the whole thing like a green fog. And then little pinpricks of light began to appear from the top of Scotland to Land's End. Then the Lord seemed to draw me closer to these lights and I saw that they were fires that were burning. They were multiplying from the top of Scotland to Land's End. Then I saw lightning come and strike those fires, the brightest spots particularly, and there was a kind of explosion and rivers of fire flowed down. Again, the sense of direction was from the top of Scotland to Land's End, but some of those rivers of fire didn't stop there. They went right across the channel and didn't stop there. They went right across the channel and spread out into the continent. The Lord impressed it on my heart that those fires I saw were groups of people whom he would make intensely hungry for New Testament Christianity. They would start reading their Bibles and saying, for instance, as they read the book of Acts, well, where is this happy church? Where are these people so full of power of the Holy Spirit? Where are these miracles? Where is the growth, this vitality, this courage, this boldness these people had? Is that for today? Can we have it today? Should the church be this way? And as these questions were being planted in their hearts, the Lord Jesus said he would make them very hungry for the Holy Spirit. He would fill them with the Holy Spirit and out of those gifts would flow ministries that would enrich the body of Christ. The whole concept of the body of Christ would come alive and barriers between denominations and different types of Christians would break down as people met each other. The Lord said he would move these people all over the country. After he had taught them gifts, he would move them to another place where they would carry that fire and where they would meet others also who were being renewed by the Holy Spirit. He would put them in different situations from what they were used to, so that they would get to know other people of other denominations, other cult cultures and other classes, and be able to communicate to them the blessings that the Lord had given them. And then he told me that during that time he would also test them. There will be great testing of faith, great waiting times, he would teach them spiritual warfare. 
He will show them the meaning of the power of the blood of Jesus, the name of Jesus, the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Then I asked the Lord, what does the lightning stand for? And he said, unlike the first part in which I will be speaking to Christians and preparing my church and renewing it and reviving the saints, the lightning represents the second part of the vision in which I will bring a spiritual awakening to the nation that will be a witness to the unsaved, to the unchurched, to the non-Christian. Through these believers I will bring a witness to this land. They will be an army of witnesses and I will begin to release their ministries so that when they give their testimonies there will be apostolic signs following them and accompanying their testimonies. Where ears have been deaf and hearts have been hard and eyes have been blind I will touch the people of this land and they will begin to hear the testimony of my people. They will begin to see the manifestations of my power and their hearts will begin to believe. Thousands and thousands of people are going to come into my kingdom through this army of witnesses, through this people movement, not characterized by any particular evangelist or great organization at the front, but just my people rising up, led by my spirit, and beginning to move forward with a new faith for evangelism, a new zeal to share Jesus with others. And as they give their testimonies, I will release their ministries of healing and miracles, and there will be signs and wonders accompanying their ministries. So many people will be saved in the villages as well as the cities, in the schools, in the government, in the media and industry. It will affect the destiny of this nation. It will determine the course of the times. Then I said, Lord, what about these streams that go on across the channel into Europe? He said that represents people who will rise up in the midst of this people movement, this army of witnesses in Britain, whom I will make my communicators. Now I hadn't used that word very much before in ministry. I said, Lord, what do you mean by communicators? And he said, they will not only be people endowed with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, with strong faith, but they will also be people talented in the arts. They will be writers, musicians, singers and actors, and also technicians in television, radio and the mass media. I will call and send them and put them in strategic places. I will bless their natural ta talents with my spirit and they will be good. They will excel. They will be leaders in their fields. I will send them into Europe where they will meet with other people in the media and through them I will release the word of God very fast in Europe. The result will be another wave of spiritual awakening with thousands coming to Christ throughout Europe. Well, I got kind of excited after I'd heard all that from the Lord, and I said, Lord, why are you telling me this? I'm on my way to Hong Kong. And he said, oh, no, you're not. You're going to stay right here, and I'm going to bring Elma here. Elma was her husband. And I said, what do you want us to do, Lord? He said, I want you to nourish the fires that I light. So I'm not the firelighter. The Lord is the firelighter. So that's 20-odd years ago now. Uh, and... As some of you know, there's a gap sometimes between prophecy spoken and prophecy fulfilled. But I sense that we are in this time now of seeing these things, uh, particularly as the sense in my own spirit is that it's the time that the body of Christ is going to rise up. It's not names at the front anymore. It's not one people, one person doing the business. It's going to be the whole body equipped and sent out to do the stuff. So that's another uh, prophecy. I've got another one here called the chapter. I've got Scads of Changing of the Guard, which is about global stuff, and Two Pathways, which I may or may not share later today, as the Lord leads, but I felt it was time to let you have that bit. So, return to first love. What's that all about? Put simply, it's putting the first commandment first, but not in the way that we've done it up till now. This is not performance Christianity. That's what's brought us to where we are today. We have watered down the power of the gospel and reduced the glory of God and the body of Christ to a bunch of impotent people who have a form of godliness but deny the power. That's Graham Cook, not me. <laughs> I would have said the same thing, but he can say it and get away with it. Uh, we've lost our ability to be simple and astonished. Why is it, as I asked early on, why don't we move more in the spirit? We do within the church, but even there it's held down, prophetic particularly. It's because we're scared that nothing will happen. 
We don't know who we are and whose we are and we have an identity crisis. To move we have to see things as they are. Doctors make a diagnosis first before they treat the patient. What is God calling you to be through the circumstances of your life? What do you need God to be for you right now? What does he want to finish in you? Love perfected in you casts out all fear. The Great Commission and the Second Commandment are one and the same. They represent a huge desire for us and those around us to be loved and blessed, to belong and be significant. But they depend on a prior engagement of heart for their energy, passion and power. To seek them outside of a greater revelation of loving and being loved by God renders them impotent and our ultimate hopes and dreams for revival, reformation, whatever you want to call it, unsatisfied. One thing is sought between heaven and earth, that is to behold the Lord and live in his presence. Psalm 27 4 says, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty or delightfulness of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. For in the day of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion, in the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me, he shall set me high upon a rock. True revival is about first love and the great commission combining in our hearts for God's people to be consumed by the love of God and to become the best expression of all that heaven will allow through us for a sick, sad and dying world. To see God as he really is in all his wonder and glory. In order for this to be made manifest in our lives there has to be a shift in the way we have seen ourselves, our commission and our relationship to God. Is it possible that we've missed the way somehow? Is it possible that we've moved in our own natural love towards the lost rather, in the love, rather than in the love of God? That we've moved in eros rather than in agape, agape? Is it possible that we've put the second commandment first and neglected the first commandment? Is it possible that God has moved and we have missed it? Is it possible that he's doing something in this time so amazing, so utterly outstanding, so breathtaking, so different that we have no books, no tapes, no past experience to measure or understand it with? The prophetic is telling us that we've moved into a new era in God. You've heard about the um, a Dust Bowl and I think now is the time to read you the other one uh, which is the two pathways which again was Chris Larkin and this one came out in August we had our 15th of August this one we had our school uh, the first week in September and it was then that I felt the paradigm shift in the spirit and this word which I found subsequently speaks of that shift so this is called two pathways nice little bit as I was praying about the next season, I felt strongly that what is coming is not a new season but a whole new era. A time which is much more significant than any other time on earth in terms of the church being shaken into the purposes of God. Seasons will merge as we move forward just as the seasons on earth are being mixed up and weather patterns are surprising forecasters so the church will begin to be unsettled as the winds of change begin to blow on all that is known. Last year around September time when Joyce and I were gleaning in the orchard next door because we were allowed to do that and got great big uh, Bramley apples. I was just reaching for a huge one that they'd missed when they were picking and I saw on the branch below a full bunch of blossom. So on the same tree was the full fruit and the blossom for the next year the sower will overtake the reaper or the reaper will overtake the sower whichever way around it is that on that tree God was showing me that the, the simultaneously the blossom and the full fruit on the same tree 
At the start of this time I saw two pathways opening up before each child of God. One was a flat path called known, and the other was a steep and winding path called unknown. Along the first pathway were many words of man. The way ahead from the beginning of this pathway seemed to be clear, with a clear destiny or destination. Many voices could be heard discussing the best way to walk along this pathway. Along the second pathway were many words of the Lord. The way ahead for this path twists and turns, and it's only possible to see a short way ahead. One voice can be clearly heard amidst the stillness and relative silence along the path. I knew that both pathways were costly to build and costly to walk on. Everywhere there were many places at which a toll must be paid in order to go on. The starting point is the same for both paths. They joined together at the beginning, and it was possible to start with one foot on each path. But then they widened sharply, and the only way to make a step forward was to choose which path to take. This is the amazing bit. Each path was diagonally opposed, and it was almost impossible to see the other path once the first steps were taken. Each step on both paths required choices, life choices, relationship choices, position and place choices. Once the first steps were taken there was no more opportunity to have a foot on both paths as one path is the way of human choices and the other one is one of abandonment to the leading of the Holy Spirit. However the Lord was present on both paths. He was close to all who were walking on each of the paths. Once a decision has been made and the path was taken, it was impossible to view the other path. This was the grace and mercy of God to avoid confusion and judgment among the people. Also, once a path had been chosen, it was impossible to turn back. Both paths had the presence and purposes of God on each side, but they were very different. The known path will be for those who have faith to do great things for God. Those who take this path will find they get what they have faith for. Much success will be evident and the Lord will be present to speak wisdom to whoever will hear. Prophetic voices can be heard on this path and they are true voices, those who have seen what the Lord wants to do, and many of the saints on this path are courageous and confident in the Lord, eager to serve Him and willing to pay the price to see God's will done on earth. The unknown path looks very different. Everyone on this path sets off on their faces, empty of all confidence in their own ability. These people have faith in God but have been brought to the end of their own strength. All visions and dreams have become meaningless to them as they realise this is a new era and that they have nothing in themselves to bring. Badges of success from the past, though valid and true, are irrelevant for the new path. Each one on this path is aware of great weakness in their own ability. They start to walk almost like they're crawling, almost flat on their faces, holding on to hope in the strength of Christ. Few voices can be heard at the start of this path, and there's only one prophetic voice to be heard at the beginning. It is a simple phrase repeated over the prostrate saints. Let him who has ears hear what the Spirit is saying. The two paths lay before us, known and unknown. The unknown, where the Holy Spirit is totally in control. The known, where people work hard to serve the Lord. Both paths are populated with God's children. The starting point for the unknown path is realisation, recognition and relinquishment of any vestige of self-reliance or expectation of ability to do anything in human strength. This starting point is not a choice, it's a position, where self is at an end, personal bankruptcy, a crashing from self, weakness, wretchedness, blindness and poverty of spirit, of self, helpless but not hopeless. There's a silence, a stillness, not even sighs or sobs, for these have gone before. At this place, sighs are really too deep to be uttered. The last breath of confidence in self is expelled. 
Leadership on this path will be sacrificial to God and man. It will be to release people. A new kind of church will emerge, built by the Spirit of God and populated by those who have to hear and see what the Spirit is saying and doing. Any other way will be untenable on this path. Badges of success gained before this point in time will be meaningless. There will be a hindrance and a distraction, for it's not what's gone before that will count. It will be each step forward into God's purposes, led by the Spirit. This is a new era. A new era. You can't read about it, learn about it, think about it or talk about it, for it's not like any time before. It requires a place and position of surrender to human plans of God's leading. Each path will be populated across the span of diversity in the Church, from Catholic, Orthodox expressions through to Pentecostal and Charismatic, all coming together by the Spirit of God. This is the time for choices. Many people have been struggling in the past few weeks, unsure of what's happening and why they're feeling so unsettled. They know that something is about to change, but are not seeing the way ahead. The next few months will be a time of significant choices. Even the smallest choice could have great significance. The choices will reflect the chosen path. Let us pray for right choices, courage and commitment. So it's not a new season, it's a new era, a new time frame. So how is that going to look? What difference is it going to make to how I position myself before God every day? Am I just going to go on doing what I've always done, feeling somehow that it isn't quite hitting the spot but it's the best I can do, hoping for the rapture before it all gets too difficult? <laughs> That's the escape <laughs> mentality. Or am I up for embracing something completely different? As we started this morning, there are successive levels of relationship that must be experienced if we're going to grow to full maturity. The nature of God must be ex fully explored if we are to enjoy the grace of his presence. The way of God as it interacts with his children needs to be keenly understood to enable us to enjoy a mature and fruitful relationship with him. So this week is an explora exploration of our first love experience, leading to servanthood, friendship, and breakthrough. The people who know their God will be those who do exploits. So we are cleared for takeoff. The first and greatest commandment, unshared love. In Mark 12, 30, 29 and 30, Jesus is being asked by one of the scribes which is the greatest commandments and he replies with what is known as the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohinu Adonai Echad. Literally, hear O Israel, the Lord your God is one. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. So the scribes responds with, You have spoken well, teacher. For there is one God, and there is no other but He, and to love Him with all the heart, with all the understanding, and with all the soul is more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He's saying, Performance Christianity is out. This is an affair of the heart. And Jesus' response to him in verse 34 is, You are not far from the kingdom of God. With God, everything is about the heart. He seeks volunteers, not conscripts. What we do, we do out of our love for him and our understanding that everything is for an audience of one. It all flows out of our relationship with him. When you settle it that you've only got one person to please, only one person who watches everything you're doing, only one person who is aware of everything you think and do and see, it simplifies things. I only ever have to please him, and he's pleased already. 
So it all flows out of our relationship with him. I really don't mind what people think about me because it's not part of the equation. What is part of the equation is what does he think? And he's standing up in the gallery when everybody else is sitting down giving me a round of applause. said to him this morning before I came out of my bedroom, Father, this audience of one, everything of this is from you, through you, to you. How many of us have joined in our church's efforts, door knocking, being part of the latest mission, with no heart for it at all, except that's what's expected of us? That's what that was all about. It makes me cringe when I think of what we did. Walking up Paddockwood High Street with I'm on fire for Jesus, are you, stuck all over our bodies. Total fleshly effort. It stinks as far as God's concerned. Sweaty effort. It's got no eternal value at all. That total waste of time. Had a bit of fun painting the Watsits. But nothing. No show of hands, please. We've all got involved in that. We are going to do a mission and we are going to go and sing on the street corner and I want volunteers, you, you and you, and you can all come and we'll all do it. And that, hmm. Nobody gets touched. They all stand there thinking, what a silly bunch of what's-its they are. There's nothing in it. It's man's effort and it brings the fruit of man's efforts. So Jesus said in Matthew 23:15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte and when he's won you make him twice as much of a son of hell as yourselves that's gentle Jesus meek and mild what he's saying is what are you bringing them into <clears throat> so my question is if we win them what are we bringing them into when we win them beloved he wants us to bring us bring them into father's house they're prodigals coming home. They need the loving embrace of the Father. When you came this morning, I said to the Lord, can I say welcome to Father's house? He said, you can. That's very precious to us, the fact that this is Father's house. He named it, we didn't. It's Father's house. He's here, lives here. We are his first love. God's intentions towards us never change. When we see and know that we are his first love, that we are the beloved of God, that our job in the earth is to be the beloved, we become the good news. First things just have to be first. For us to see the reformation we also desire, we've got to get things in the same order as he places them. We must return to the position of the lover and the beloved. From that, everything else will proceed as surely as night follows day. You cannot be in ministry without intimacy. Everything proceeds from him. From him and through him and to him are all things. Your ministry must flow from your position as the beloved of God. Jesus did. He said, I can do nothing except what I see the Father doing. He kept going off and going away and being with his father. God wants us to think simply. Love him and love the person next to us. This simplicity earths us in the truth of who God is and who he wants to be. The goal of our lives is to love him with everything we have and to love everyone else around us in exactly the same way as we would like to be loved ourselves. Simple. But there's something in the way, isn't there? Luke six twenty-seven to 31 But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you do to them likewise. This is do as you would be done by. <laughs> 
What is your perception of who God is this day? These are my questions. Who exactly is he to you? We can talk the talk, but it's a totally different thing to walk the walk. This is up front, personal, in your face, or rather in his face. Who is he to you? Is he the lover of your soul? Do you know him as the one whom your heart desires above all else? So my questions for you to take away and think about and answer between you and the Lord honestly is how do you see God? And how do you see yourself in relationship to him? Those are the questions I'd like you to address today. How you see him and how you see yourself in relationship to him. I've thrown in a lot of other questions along the way, but those are the ones I want you to address first. God wants us to think simply. Love him, love the person next to us. This simplicity earths us in the truth of who he is and who he wants to be. The goal of our lives is to love him with all our... <laughs> everything we've got. <laughs> How would you spell that? I came up with E-R-R-U-M-P-H. <laughs> and love everyone else around us in exactly the same way as we would like to be loved ourselves. Simple. But there's something in the way, isn't there? We cannot ma manufacture this heartfelt love. Do you remember I just said, there's something in the way, isn't there? And Jesus comes to us and says... I want to replace your love with my love. As June said the other day, I want to replace your attitude with my attitude. I want to replace your eros with my agape love. We've experienced over the past maybe 10 years or more the Toronto blessing, God coming down and touching the dry spots radically. Renewal, revival, call it what you will, a revelation of his father heart. Sometimes, though, we get stuck. We get stuck even in current blessings like Toronto. Or maybe even passed us by completely and we never knew about it or understood what God's purpose was behind it and perished the thought. Some didn't even believe it was him. The purpose of this visitation was that there should be a restoration of our burning desire to love him and do his will, to share his father heart with all with whom we come into contact, that we may become a place of his habitation, not just visitation. God is all about habitation. He dwelt with the children of Israel in the wilderness wanderings. And we know from Revelation that this is the consummation of his plan from the foundation of the earth. A people for himself, a people who will love him freely, not under duress, but freely. A love affair, the whole Bible is a love affair, ever thought about that? When Jesus came the first time, he said about Israel, if only you had known the day of your visitation. It's the time when he was weeping over Jerusalem and it's not Luke 19:41 to 44. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. There's a will involved there. When he comes again, it will be to take us, his bride, to himself forever. We need to begin to get an eternal perspective. All this is about God's eternal plan. We are his completely forever. Do you need to lift up your eyes round about and see? See from a different perspective, a different vantage point. If you do, just ask him right now, Father, can I see things from your perspective please? Perspective affects how we position ourselves 
and position affects how we petition, how we pray. So we need to find his perspective in order to position ourselves to petition in the correct way. More and more we're required to get his perspective on our everyday life in order that we can position ourselves and pray effectively and bring his will down on earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Have done with dartboard prayers. His will is only going to get done one way, through us. It won't get done through the unbeliever. And 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that we, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know we have the petitions we have asked of him. This is the confidence we have. If we ask anything according to his will, that's the key. He tells us what his will is, we ask for it, we see answers. Jesus said the same thing in John 14, 13 and 14. You will ask what you will and it will be done for you. All in the context of abiding, friendship, which we'll be looking at later. And he's saying anything in line with my will, I will answer. So we need to align ourselves with his will and then pray it down. Could this be the answer to so many so-called unanswered prayers and the disappointment with God in the church? We aren't doing it his way. It's simple. We are out of alignment. But we say he's a disappointment. Paradigm shift. Ephesians three fourteen to 19 says this. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named, that he will grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of God, which passes knowledge. There's an oxymoron. To know the love of God that passes knowledge. <laughs> that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. God's intention for you is fullness, not measure. Fullness. Whenever he visits us, he's intentional. He has a purpose. Bob Mumford says he's convinced that God will go on trying with us till we get it right. Visitation after visitation after. Every time we squander it. We squander it particularly the Toronto thing, squandered it on ourselves. The bride filled herself with it. It didn't overflow. Fullness, overflow. It's his intention that you should be rooted and grounded in his agape love, which is unconditional, unselfish, generous, and doesn't seek anything in return. That you should be able to comprehend in this life the length, breadth, depth and height of this love of God for you which surpasses knowledge. What does it mean for you to be loved in this way? How can we stand every day in the depth and glory of that love and be changed by it? Everyone we come into contact with must stand in the overflow, they must get splashed. They receive something of the love of God that we're standing in and constantly receiving. The restoration of our first love, therefore, is essential if we're ever to carry out the Great Commission. We have a cult of ministry in the Western Church. A laying on of hands and a prayer. 
is not scriptural. The fullness of God is that you understand for yourself what is the totality of his love for you and that you know that God is hungry for you to see it, hungry for you to experience it. It's all about allowing yourself to be drawn into a deep, deep place of intimacy with him. Up front, in your face, you and him, no spectators, please. He's hungry for you, and you, and you, and you over the back there, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you. All of you, and me. And from that, you will move into his heart's desire and the greater works that Jesus promised we should do. The first commandment and the second commandment come together and the people out there begin to be blessed by us. We are his beauty, his bride. But sometimes we pray like widows, don't we? We need to begin to pray like the beauty we are. Pray like someone who is loved. Pray, God says, like the beauty you are to me. When you seek his face, you find out his heart. From there, you pray his will. There is a power in God's love. There are four measurements, Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, 14 to 19. I read it just now. It's broad enough to cover everything. It's long enough to last for eternity. It's high enough to reign over heaven. And it's deep enough to redeem anything and anyone. I was quite surprised the other day when I was reading something and I don't remember what it was and the writer said, do you think God loves Osama bin Laden as much as he loves you? For a moment I thought he can't. I mean that was my true response. I didn't think the right response, which was of course. But the truth is he does. Staggering love amazing grace and this is the love that's enshrined in the first commandment expressed by Jesus in Mark 12:30. and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind and with all your strength we were listening to one of Graham soaking the other night and he says have you ever thought that this might be a benediction not a command that God is saying I'll see to it that you do. Because <laughs> on the back side of every command comes the provision to do it. So he will bring about circumstances in our lives so that we will do the one thing he's asking us to do. God's a God of principles. So you start getting the principles right. He initiates, you respond. You don't do the initiating. You're a responder. And so... He says you, he gives you a commandment, be holy as I'm holy. He's going to give you the stuff to do it with. He's going to ensure that you are. Because he's going to captivate your heart in such a way that you won't want to be involved in the stuff. Psalm 51 has always been important to me because if you know it, you'll know it's uh, David's psalm when he had sinned with Bathsheba and he'd killed her husband. He'd, he'd done all the stuff right to the end of it. But he says something very key. He sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against her husband. He's done all these things. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That's why he was a man after God's heart. He knew who he sinned against. If I sin against June or Carol or Sue, I'm essentially sinning against him. I know that. So, because of the relationship, I don't want to do it. I don't want to break fellowship with him. Because that is more important to me than anything else. So, because I don't want to break fellowship with him, I'm going to guard how I am in the rest of my life. Because that is what is important to me. Unshared love. And out of that unshared love, uh, he loves me, I love him back. It bounces off him like a satellite and I love other people. 
It's totally supernatural, the love that I have for the body of Christ. If I tried it in my own Eros love, forget it. I see each person as totally an individual. I love them with everything I've got. Uh, it's not like I divide it. It gets multiplied. more people there are, the more it multiplies. That's God. So don't ever be afraid of giving Him your love totally. And saying to him, Father, I want to love the way you do. Let me love, receive your love so that I can love you and then you can do what you like through me. Because your family and everybody else is going to get blessed. Because it's a multiplication goes on. Anything you place into his hands, he multiplies it. So there couldn't be more teaching about love at the moment. History shows us that the church has had various moves of God which resulted in us enshrining things in concrete. This is so funny and I'll try and type this out. I've got it in such, myself in such a muddle. John Wesley, out of which came Methodism. I'll try to say it straight this time. General Booth, massive move, out of which came the Salvation Army. Please, Lord, let me get this one straight. Pentecostal movement. I kept saying Pentecostal. I couldn't get it out. Pentecostal. It wouldn't come out straight. That's because um, old Steve Hebden, he says, doesn't he? Pentecostals, charismaniacs. Oh. So you've got all these movements and they become denominations. So the Pentecostal movement came an emphasis on tongues, the charismatic movement, out of which came an emphasis on gifts. That was where I came into Christianity in the 80s. And Toronto with an emphasis on the Father's heart. What if God's moved on even from Toronto? Don't miss me on this because a new era doesn't set aside what's happened before. We still need to speak in tongues, exercise the gifts, know the Father's heart in increasing measure until we're full to overflowing. But as human beings, we do love to be caught up in something. And if it pleases us, we'll stay there and make a monument to it. The danger of the corporate is that it can overlook the individual. We come together and we sing all the right things. But when we're alone with him, barrenness. So has Jesus got a love-starved bride? It is possible that right now Christ has a love-starved bride. She's like a beautiful woman who's got everything. She's married, she's got a nice house, nice car, good job, security, happy family, wardrobe full of designer clothes. But she isn't satisfied. She never found him. She never found her husband. The key word is intimacy. How many of you know that you don't need to have intimacy to have children my son has just been on jury service and he sat on a paedophile case it upset him very much I understand internet pornography the man in the dock wife was there married to him seven years apparently she was in a wheelchair so he was her primary carer she was distraught it was her second marriage she brought both children in with her and here he is up on a child pornography rack she never knew him. Can you imagine what that is doing to that marriage? The questions she must be asking. And the word that came to me was it's endemic. So I had to look it up because I didn't know what endemic meant. From ultimately the Greek endemos, native, literally in the people. From demos, people. So it's literally in the people. Is it endemic in the church, you think, that the bride doesn't know him? She sought his hand, but never his face. His gifts, the experience of being touched by him, all the warm fuzzies if you've got them, but you've never known him. He wants us to seek his face, and that's what this week's all about, Psalm 27.8. When you said, seek my face, my heart said, your face, O Lord, will I seek. He desires that we seek his face, not his hand, that we should go on into all he has for us. As children grow, they become more interested in who their parents are, hopefully, rather than what they can get out of them. He desires the same thing of us. Intimacy is the essence of Christianity. 
into me, see, as I've heard it said. The bride is revived when he comes. When God himself comes, intimacy and she swoons with delight. I don't know how many of you know Madame Gill and her writings. She expressed her relationship with God. She described it so graphic, graphically. And she was something like, I don't know, 16th, 17th century, wasn't she, Madame Gill? Let's get the dates wrong there. As being spiritually as overwhelming as intercourse with her husband. And that got her slapped into the, the Bastille for blasphemy because she was so graphic about her relationship with God. Um, and that's how she described it in all her innocence. Bastille. You can have a ministry. You can have prayer answered. You can have material supply. You can belong to a thriving church. You can have all the outward signs and no intimacy. What you have is religion and religious activity without spirituality. Salvation without satisfaction. Answers without care, concern or compassion. Answer prayer with leanness of soul. It is possible to fill our hearts like a love-starved bride with other things than the king and his kingdom purposes. It is possible that what we have is Christian materialism, which we mistake for his love and intimate companionship. So Jesus comes to us and says, I want to replace your love with my love. The bride must be taught. She must know his ways and his heart. His love keeps pursuing us. Salvation is wonderful, but it's only the beginning. Jesus has opened up the way into the Holy of Holies. We can all go in and have an re intimate relationship with him. This is not for just a few. This is for all. Until we touch intimacy, we are a well-supplied love-starved bride so he desires our unshared love what's that it's love that is centered on him alone and out of which all other relationships flow Adam in the garden he loved God he loved his wife and the garden now we love God the wife the children the cat the dog the house all on the same level our understanding of what love is hasn't materially changed and we use the same word I love strawberries, I love God mm -hmm. what's the difference? I'm using the same word the love Adam had for God in the beginning wasn't Eros it was Agape it only became Eros when he fell so Jesus the second Adam comes and says I want to replace your Eros with my Agape I want to replace, have my agape, instead of that love that's got a hook attached to it. So what's he mean? He means it takes God to love God. People often come to me and say, I love God. What they mean is that they have an affectionate feeling towards this person, but mostly they don't actually know him intimately. I'm not saying that I do. But it's my life's ambition to burrow deeply into him and be lost in him. So he won't be able to find me at all. I'm at the place where I can say, I know you, you wouldn't do that. Because of my relationship with him. I'm not there, but I'm on my way. I know enough to know that my natural love is not what is acceptable to him. I must love as I worship, in spirit and in truth. So I need to know and understand the love God has for me in order that reciprocal love can start to take place as does reciprocal abiding Jesus said in his high priestly prayer didn't he Father I in them and you in me that's where he wanted us to be John 17:23. so when you see people like Graham Cook you don't only see the anointing you see a consistent walk ever deepening into the heart of God what Graham is saying now, he's been saying for the last 10 years at least, the message isn't new. What is fresh and new is that the same message comes from an ever-deepening relationship with God himself. He knows whom he has believed and is persuaded that he is able to keep that which he's committed unto him against that day. That's a 
song as him in the redemption hymnal so what you think about God is the single most important thing in your life so thank you for listening um, we're going to have a little soak to a prophetic word which will tell you how he sees you